2: This is Metal Mike, and on this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, it's the Bang Tango Spectacular. We first talk with original guitarist Mark Knight. We hear his side of the Bang Tango story, and we hear about his new band, Mark Knight and the Unsung Heroes. Then it's Howard Benson, their producer. Howard talks about producing Bang Tango Psycho Cafe in 1989, and he also talks about other bands he's produced, like Pretty Boy Floyd and Motorhead. It's a killer episode. Check it out. Well, Mark, welcome to the 80s Glam Model Cash. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, thanks for being here. Well, hey, man, can we reminisce a little bit about some Bang Tango? Whatever you want to talk about, man. I'm here for uh, for, for you ask me the questions, I'll answer them. All right. <laughs> so you started the band with Kyle Kyle, correct? Yes. Yes, okay. That's how did correct. you uh, find all the other guys? How did, how did that process work?
0: Uh, so basically the, 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 the way... Bang Tango came about was me and Kyle uh, were in another band called City Slick. Uh, he basically quit the band, and I could have continued on with the singer in the band, but I figured uh maybe it's time for uh, to invent another project or do something with Kyle and find another singer, not different guys. So, uh long story short, I said, uh, "I'm like Kyle, man. You know what?" Let's put something together fresh. You know, uh, We'll find another singer. Let's take the drummer out of City Slick, which we did at the time. Uh, I have this buddy, this kid that I grew up with uh, that I actually taught guitar to, Kyle Stevens, and I said, I'd like to get a second guitar player just to fill it out more. So we asked Kyle, and he, uh, he said, sure. So, so we had Kyle uh, Stevens, Kyle Kyle, obviously, and then the original drummer from City Slick, Brett Greenberg, and then we needed a singer. So uh we went to uh I looked we were looking for a singer all over LA and uh my buddy Amir Darak, who's from Rough Cut had just tried out 300 singers for Rough Cut and I said hey well, who are your top your top guys that you didn't didn't go with and he mentioned this guy Joe Lestay who was um living in San Diego he goes he's real green he's real young he's got a vibe about him you know uh you should reach out to him so uh he gave me his number and I called him and uh, that's when we got together with Joe. You know, me and him had conversations for hours on end and Finally, he, his brother had lived up in LA. He was in San Diego. He goes, "I'll move up and came out and play with us." And uh, it just it just it just worked out. And that's that's kind of how the original lineup formed.
2: Nice. I mean, what an interesting voice he has. I mean, I remember uh, you know getting that album as a kid, and it's like. Just thinking it was like a mix of like uh Jim Morrison and Billy Idol and Steven Tyler. I mean just he's got his own vibe, but it's all these other cool influences come in and make up his voice. It's it's amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh at the when we first when we first had him in the rehearsal studio her, you know, he was just discovering his top end, that high end uh-huh. voice he has. So that was kinda like a little wonky at the beginning. <laughs> but his low end was cool and he would sing like Billy Idol. And We're like, Yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's hone in on that. But uh, he just had a vibe about him, you know, and he and he, he looked cool as hell when he sang, and he, and that low end, that kind of Billy Idol, uh, Ian Attsbury kind of thing he had going. We're like, oh man, we need to you need, you need to, like play up that more. Yeah. So eventually he developed that top end thing that he that he ended up you know the top end kind of screechy kind of voice he developed. That was like he found that <laughs> in Bang Tango. He's like, oh man, let's I found this new voice. So uh, you know that's kind of where that went.
2: I always like stuff like that, and I've mentioned that in other episodes. I dig when like the, the singer can almost sing in two different voices. Uh, it, it's just cool, you know. what I mean, I, I like it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. It was a, uh, you know, we were just, we were just, we just, we had, we found a front front man, and he was the guy, and it, it you know, it, it lit up from there real fast.
2: So you guys put out Psycho Cafe. I mean, I mean, this is a classic. What do you think when you look back and listen to it all these years later?
0: Oh, it's a great record. You know, I mean, we had great songs. Uh, it was a magical record. We, you know, we uh, we had a I had a batch of songs I'd written back from when I was even like living at my parents' house that I, you know, found a band to kind of do these songs and put it all together. And it just it just clicked. And you know, when Howard came in, he Howard hadn't produced anybody at the time, really. Uh, he just it was we were all just like on the verge of something, like something's going to happen. And then we had these songs and we went to Austin, Texas, and did the record and it just clicked. And uh, uh, we we just felt like we had something. And this, the record was great. We were all proud of it and it, it sounded right. And, um, you know, it, it it got some attention.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, it's not really like anything that was out at the time, at least in the hard rock scene, because, I mean, you guys got funk elements little jazzy stuff here and there you got the wah guitar these are things that really you didn't find on your typical 80s rock record
0: well we didn't consider ourselves an 80s rock band by any means (laughs) um you know i mean that that's just a box people put us in because you know we cut our teeth on the la you know sunset strip scene but you know we were an influence we i mean yeah there are parts of that street rock that we were Sleaze rock, whatever you want to call it, I don't know. There's a million names for it, sure. but I mean, you know, we were going after like old school uh, influences, like more '70s rock, more, uh, you know, f- funk, kind of funk groove stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we 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 acquired all that into the sound of the band, which, which included with a heavy edge because we we were, you know, coming off the Sunset Strip, so we were, you know, coming off, you know, being, you know guitar player being an Eddie Van Halen fan or, uh, you know, also being like a Jimmy Page fan or a, a Kyle Stevens was a Hendrix fan. You know, mm-hmm. we were, it, yeah. it was all a mixture of all that, you know.
2: And, you know, the guitar work, when you listen back to it, is, is very tasteful. It's not a lot of, there's no, really, there's no shredding or any of that kind of stuff that was going on with a lot of those other bands.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were after being uh, tasteful as we could from our influences and, you know, thinking about, what's important for the song, even though we did trade off some solos and we actually did do a lot of shredding, but um, it wasn't about like extended shredding solos. Like, I don't know. It it was more about the song, you know, It, it was always, that was the focus point for that time and still is for me.
2: Well, when I talked to Howard, I mean, he spoke very highly of you guys. He, he thought you were ahead of your time. Um, I, I think that too I mean when you go back And listen to it And it's funny You mentioned the cult Because I kind of feel Like Bang Tango Almost is in that Same kind of pocket Where where the cult mm-hmm. Kind of fell into The 80's rock Scene with like uh, Sonic Temple And Firewoman And all that But they really Weren't that kind of thing They were like uh, Almost like the alternative Before alternative Was a real thing Kind of You know what I mean Yeah right. Yeah
0: the, the, the cult were a Complete different band Back in the day They're from Europe They're like they were doing stuff that was, like, completely different. But then they they found their, like, they decided to go, like, real, you know, re, like, real ACDC would be a good example of just raw and dry yes. and rocking. You know, and they they changed their sound for the times. And they did it at the right time because that whole 80s scene was happening. And there was this club called the Cat House in L.A. where all the bands, like, we all hang out at and the cult was like a staple band there they just they they had this sound that was real acdc but they came from like like the mission uk kind of influence or Les jezebel or or any like these euro kind of weird you know alternative bands so that's where they came from and they just went with the times and they went with the times in a cool way which was
2: real real raw rock and
0: roll which was cool yeah
2: you know and People could say, "Oh, you know, so and so jumped on this bandwagon," but no, man. Think back to like Rolling Stones. I mean, it was always the Stones, but it was, you know, it, it was in different eras, different genres. You know, they, they dabbled in what was going on, and that. I mean, that's how a band survives, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Stones like are a perfect example. I mean, they've 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 survived the test of times, right, for yeah. all these years. Then they've gone through every style, and you know, whoever's like, you know, dictating the movement in their style or sound you know Keith or well, I'm a huge Keith Richards fan So, but like you know Mick, Mick always wanted to be current you know he always wants to keep it like you know whatever it is like if, if Prince is the biggest thing that year you know they're going to do a disco song you know whatever so, <laughs> yeah. so you know that's kind of what the cult did. we I don't know I don't know how we're going on to this but anyways Bang Tango <laughs> I mean we're going on to a whole different talk about music but Bang Tango was basically we just we just I don't know. We just had a, a, a collection of five different guys with different influences that wanted to, to rock and wanted to, to funk and dance and groove and you know whatever it was that made our sound. It was a it was a lucky collaboration of those five guys at that time to make that sound, and it was different. You're right.
2: Well, let's go to Dancing on Coles because I feel feel like on this album the the funkiness is is really kicking up. Where like maybe you had a few funky songs on Psycho Cafe. It seems like this album's a lot more funkier, and there's there's the horns and all that. Was that kind of just the direction you were going for that one?
0: Uh, different producer. We went with John Jansen, who uh, was a little bit more uh, old school kind of producer. He mm-hmm. you know he worked with uh, Eddie Kramer and did stuff with Hendrix and all that. He's he's just like he. He, different style, but we liked kind of what he did with, uh, he had produced a Cinderella record and a faster Pussycat record and, mm-hmm. um, just old school type of guy, uh, producer. Um, and we went with him. So that's, and then he enabled us to bring in horns, bring in, you know, the stones, but background singers and, uh, um, you know, a string section on, um, Midnight Struck. And we just wanted to, make this record some like kind of a huge production, honestly, with the ability to bring in these people. Cause we could, cause we had a budget and a label that would permit it. Nice. So that's why uh, it changed up a lot. We kind of went away from the kind of raw edge of psycho cafe, which some of our fans didn't really uh, go with, but we, we wanted to do that at the
2: time. That's what we did. Some of the, like, especially dancing, dancing, man, is the song and I, there's a lot of songs on Psycho Cafe like this as well, but it's got like the the high guitar notes, you know, that pretty much are the riff. Uh, is that your is that you doing? Did you make up those? Groups? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I most I wrote most I wrote most ninety uh, percent of like the m- riffs and guitar stuff. Um, I, I initiated most of those. Someone like you is my uh, dance uncle. Attack of Life. Every uh, most of the riff stuff is is basically came from me. Bringing that to the band And we putting it together um, So yeah
2: Yeah I always love All that sound I mean it's it's And then once again That was interesting And a lot different Than a lot of the other stuff That was out at that point
0: Yeah the, the Dancing on Cold is Like the actual song Like that intro Like you know It's kind of going after Like a follow up To someone like you In a yeah. sense You know Some kind of cool intro that's yeah. Like different guitar thing A little, yeah. little bit more simple But um, catchy You know that's Oh yeah a, Yeah the, that, that is kind of, Yeah that was the initiation Of that song and then you know we went from there
2: now one thing that howard said is that he said he did not believe in this batch of songs and that's why he didn't produce the album do you what are your thoughts on all that how that went down (laughs) jeez that's
0: what he said (laughs) (laughs) yes he didn't believe in this batch of songs well let's start with this yeah we wrote 50 songs for that record Uh uh-huh 50 songs and we narrowed it down to the 12 that made that song, that record. Mm-hmm. Maybe at that point when Howard came into this, uh, those songs weren't developed yet. I uh, We still had to put in more time in, in writing the songs that made Dancing on Coles. So when John Jansen decided to take on the job of producing us, we literally submitted 50 songs to him. And he narrowed down these Songs that made on cold. So I don't think Howard even heard half these songs that made the record because early in the process he wasn't believing in the stuff we had, and that was part of our uh, frustration with Howard. Where we're okay. just like, "Well, these are our songs, man," and he's like, "Well, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it." Like just like you said, and it got to the point where there was some sort of falling out between us and him. I don't it it was really hard to remember what happened, sure. but I think it was mainly he wasn't digging what we were doing, and we were doing the best we could, and we were just like, well, we want to move on, and if you don't want to do this, we'll find somebody else, but we ended up writing another you know thirty songs after that to get that record. <laughs>
2: So maybe he didn't even hear what ended up being on the record at the point of the preliminary exactly. stuff. Okay,
0: sure. Exactly, exactly. That's why I questioned that that comment that he said. But, I mean, maybe he heard some of those songs, but maybe he missed them because people love that record.
2: Oh,
0: yeah. It was early It was early in the game with that, with yeah. him. So I think those comments came from songs maybe that weren't near, like, record, you know, ability to be on a record. <laughs> he could be right. So, anyways...
2: Who knows man it's, it's it's a super long time ago it's freaking yeah a long
0: time. 30 years ago <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly shit i can't hardly remember what happened a couple days ago i don't know about 30 years ago <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so now I have a good memory. I'm an elephant.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do oh good, good. So you know what threw me off, man, is uh, he was talking about how he produced your third album, and I'm like, wait a minute, I don't remember a third album. It, it never even came out in the U.S., right?
0: Oh, like Love After Death. Yeah, you've you heard of it. Yeah, yeah. You you don't know the story with that?
2: No, no. Please, please tell. Oh, that was
0: like so. So, anyways, we did Dance on Coals, right? And then we did that. That thing happened, and then. Um, you know, we got another chance with MCA to do another record. And we did this record called Love After Death. And we brought Howard back to produce it. And it was, like, the best work we ever did. Like, heavy as heavy as Psycho Cafe, but a little bit more raw, more kind of Seattle vibe, you know. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like, my best work ever as far as, like, bringing in songs and writing. I felt, like, super proud of it and the did. So uh, Howard produced it, and, um, you know, we went in after two years of recording, and, and MCA shelved it. Said, oh, no, we're not putting it out. That sucks. Yeah. So you don't know about that record? Have you ever heard it?
2: I, yeah, I listened. Yes, it, it sounds very good. I listened to it after I spoke with him, but I felt I felt kind of like an idiot. I felt kind of blindsided because, like I said, I I had the first two albums. I loved you guys, but then you just kind of yeah. it got harder, man. It was like there was no support once you got to the the early '90s. No, you know, MTV didn't play the videos. Radio, radio didn't play the music, so it's like you started to lose track of people. This pre-internet you know phase
0: that we were in yeah well we put that record out and you know mca dropped it we went in to talk marketing and they said no we're put- not putting it out so a european label called music for nations put it out in europe and uh, we went out and toured over there for a couple months and, and you know we were so proud of that record i mean we spent two years making it in like studios all over the entire country from new york to up to san francisco it was just howard produced it it was great it's it's an insane sounding record and it didn't see the light of day you know it you know after after it's kind of the the breakup of bang tango like you know we went to europe and and did a quick tour of it and then like things were going wonky with the whole band and it's kind of how we broke up
2: Mm -hmm. so what'd you do after that so the band splits and then what did you do directly after uh bang tango
0: so back then, it was like 95, um, I was getting really into singing songwriting and uh, just kind of becoming this whole different style of Americana rock that I do. Like kind of, you know, uh, country five, singer-songwriter, blues, mm-hmm. whole thing. And started writing my own songs and singing my own songs. And we came back from this tour with Bang Tango and the band just literally dissolved. Like everybody went their own way. So I started, uh, doing these acoustic shows in Hollywood, this learning how to sing and write, and write my own songs and uh, evolved into a band called Worry Beads. And that band put out a bunch of, uh, not a bunch, a couple, couple records, um, and used Tid Kettler from Bang Tango and Kyle Stevens was in that band from, you know, I'd use all my guys. Right. And then eventually, um, uh, after that, uh, I went solo and put this band The Unsung Heroes together Mark Knight The Unsung Heroes and uh, continued to craft my my artist as a singer-songwriter and a singer and of a band and writing songs and I just wrote hundreds of songs and played hundreds of gigs and toured the south over and over I did a lot of southern rock tours and uh, played out um, and just continued to, to do uh, what I what in my heart of hearts wanted to do, and that's where I
2: am today. Yeah, man, I've been checking out your stuff. I mean, uh, you're a great singer, so if people haven't, uh, you know, checked it out, I'll put some links in the video, and they can go on Spotify, and you can look it up. It's Mark Knight and the uh, Unsung Heroes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, so does that what, because I'm listening to it, and I'm, I'm getting that, you know, bluesy vibe, uh, southern rock vibe, and, and that's obviously what you're shooting for. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's that's like my initially just natural voice and what I want to do, and it, it's it's. You know, I just became like this singer-songwriter guy that was a good, you know lead guitar player in Bang Tango, whatever. Uh, it just it just was my natural course, and I really enjoyed doing it, and I continued to do it, and it got better and better. And I ended up playing with some guys from some huge bands like you know Government Mule from uh, mm-hmm. you know Government Mule is Warren Haynes from he uh, used to be in the Almond Brothers, and you know uh, Dwayne Betts play, and I had all these guys from like this kind of blues um, jam band kind of scene. Um, and I started getting into that. Um, and then, you know, worry beats was kind of a a jam band kind of singer songwriter Americana rock band. And then it with, with some roots rock, like, you know, like stones and even some heavy stuff from bang tango. And I went through all these different sounds. So I put out, um, I started with perfect American family, which was a six song EP uh, then I did a record with Matt Apps from Government Mule called, uh, Bone Real Tight, Mark Knight. And then after that, I put a band together with, uh, Mark Smalia and, uh, Reed Downs, who's from Rhino Bucket, bass player, uh, Tig Kettler from Bang Tango, and we put this band called Unsung Heroes together, Mark Knight and the Unsung Heroes. And we did Road to Guys, a live band, real live. We went in and recorded live, put that record out. And then from there, I did like, I went back to more of acoustic thing. I did Mark Knight's self title record. After that, um, I did another full blown record called Don't Kill the Cat, which is recent 2018. Mm-hmm. And since then, uh, last two years, I just recorded 15 new songs for a new record called Days of a Dreamer, which is my best work ever. I can't wait to, for you to hear this. Um, and just keep evolving, you know?
2: Now, when, when do you plan on releasing the new album?
0: So, uh, like I said, I spent, you know, with quarantine and all this yeah. COVID, uh, last year I've just been in the studio recording this new record, recorded 15 songs, ended up down narrowing, narrowing it down to like 13 songs, and we're going to release it in late, probably like um, early spring 2021. I'm going to drop the video real soon here in December for the first song, um, and that's the plan, but it's uh it's great man it's the best stuff i've ever done in my career i think
2: awesome man well i'm sure everybody yeah. will will love to hear it when it comes out now with bang tango you guys announced i want to say it was in the end of 19 that you were you know going to reunite and do some shows and i think and you did do some shows but then did the covid thing kind of come in and it kind of halted it or
0: yeah well we got together and reformed all original members about a year from today actually uh, funny you should say that. It was like November, I don't know, somewhere around, whatever the date is today, November 15th or something. And we went into the studio, in a rehearsal studio. We got everybody together. Joe, Joe, uh, lives in Arizona and Kyle lives in Vegas and the rest of us live out here. Went in the studio and just said, Hey, let's get in the room and play. And we, we played and we're like, that's cool. Let's do something. Ended up, uh, booking a gig and doing a show, uh, only one, uh, at the whiskey, um, in 2020 beginning of this year mm-hmm. january 25th 2020 we went and played the whiskey our old stomping grounds uh with all original members with a great set of old stuff new, st- you know the whole the whole genre of songs and um super killer man we, we sold it out and we had plans to do more shows throughout 2020 but um come march covet hit and we were we were just clipped like every other band
2: do you think there's any more songs you guys will ever do or do, you, do you ever like write something and say oh this could be bang tango
0: <laughs> everybody <laughs> asked me that <laughs> um you know i try to do some writing with joe uh you know via like you know through the computers and snap and but I, like, we're type of, we're the type of band that really needs to get together and just mm-hmm. get in the room together um you know I, I don't say that it will never happen but um it's you know, I, I was so wrapped up in my, this record, uh, Days of a Dream that I'm putting out. I was just focused on that. And to me to like go back and be like, okay, let's write a Bang Tango song. Like I was just, it wasn't, it was like changing channels in the middle of my process because I started recording my new record before Bang Tango ever reformed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, a lot of fans were like, well, you need to write some Bang Tango songs, man. Well, you guys got to write some originals. And, uh, I'm not saying that it's not, It's never going to happen, but at this point, I just, I don't, it's just kind of not in the works, we're, we really want to just come out and, like, bring back the old stuff and play it for people with the original guys.
2: Yeah, that's probably what makes the most sense, because... It's it's really hard when it, when a band has been inactive for so long and then they do new material. It's like it, it kind of it's just hard because people are so judgmental. You know what I mean? Oh, that doesn't sound like what they did thirty years ago. Well, yeah. Well, why should it? You know what I mean? So it's hard to please everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if like I really put my heart of hearts into right. it, uh, you know, I I think I could create a bunch of great songs with the band. Of, of course, course, you know, not just me only, but I could probably. We could do it, but it's like you know, these guys live in different states, and, you know, it's – it's. Um, I don't know. It's just – I don't know. I mean, you know, pleasing the fans, they all want, oh, we knew Bang Tango, man. Like, well, you know, it's not that simple. Like, you know, you just right. like – you know, otherwise, you throw a bunch of shit together, and it's not that great. You know, you want it to be really great if you're going to come back and after, you know, 30 years and put another record out together – it's got to be right, and you know, there's a lot of different, uh, different like personalities in that band, um, and everybody's on a different page because we've all it's been 20 years since we've seen each other. Happen, mm-hmm. you know, so we're all on different like musical pages, and I, I just I don't know. I, I'm not saying it it might not happen, but to me, it's I, I'm just pleased with my new record that I'm about to put out.
1: to Be honest
2: yeah you know and I don't ever think anyone should do anything that's forced because when you look at it like you said if you're really inspired in doing your solo stuff and, and that's what's coming natural and, and it's working for you that's what you gotta do because there's been so many times where I feel like I've heard music that's just been forced or somebody just put it out to make money and you know I just feel like people can see right through that
0: yeah absolutely because it was like oh yeah money, money. you guys need a new record you gotta put a new record out you yeah. guys all came back together again yeah well we're we gonna write you know like we write a bunch of stuff that nobody really likes in the band themselves, like, or, you know, I'm not pleased with the vocal melody or I'm not pleased with the groove or whatever, you know, so, so oh, just do it because it's just, it's just forced, you know, and it's like, it, you know, it's not a money grab to me because like, you know, I don't know what money there would be in it anyways, right. but I'm sure that, like, you know, we could probably get a record deal on, you know, Frontier Records and yes. put out a... <laughs> You know, stupid fucking Bang Tango record with a bunch of, you know, stupid songs that we really don't believe in. You know, I don't know. I, my music is like, I mean, I have higher, like, you know, praise for like the real musicianship and the real songs. I'm I'm not, I'm not trying to go artsy and deep in here, but like, I put music above any of the marketing bullshit that, you know, people may force down you to do, you know?
2: Yep yeah man i'm with you 100 percent. well hey mark i appreciate your time man it was great chatting with you i you know we went a lot of different directions but i think it was a great conversation
0: awesome mike metal mike thanks for having me man
2: <laughs> you got it man <laughs> Well, Howard, welcome to the '80s glam metal cast. How you doing tonight?
1: Good. I never thought I'd be doing an '80s glam metal cast, but it's <laughs> the first time for everything.
2: Definitely. <laughs> well, hey, I feel that 1989 was the peak of the '80s hard rock scene. Uh, you produced some really cool albums that year, and I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit on them. Does sure. that sound good? Yep. Okay. I'm ready to go? Perfect. Well, first one up is uh, Bang Tango Psycho Cafe. Um, I thought these guys were awesome. I didn't think they were the typical 80s band by any means. I thought they had elements of Aerosmith and Billy Idol and Red Hot Chili Peppers. What would you think of Bang Tango?
1: Well, that's partly why I really thought they weren't really a glam band, but they were kind of shot like a glam band in the videos. Yes. So they kind of got, you know, lumped in there. But they were definitely like... And I think a lot of this came from the bass player, Kyle Kyle. Yes. He was like a a big part of the sound of that band was just his bass playing. And, you know, the, the guitar players were super inventive, the two of them, Kyle and um, Kyle and Mark. And, uh, you know, uh, Joe was, you know, he was kind of a crooner, singer. He mm-hmm. was like, he had his own thing going on. So he liked that kind of Steven Tyler kind of stuff. And he, you know, so we actually, you know, I went to see them at first, In a rehearsal hall with Ron Overman, who just actually recently passed away, he was the head of A&R at Columbia. And uh, you know, I started working with them before they were signed, and you know, was really one of my first records I had produced. I think maybe it was like um, the fourth record I had done, or third—I don't know. Actually, maybe maybe even more than that. I can't remember that far back. But you know, I was just kind of learning a little bit. And one of the things I wanted to do was to take them out of LA. Mm-hmm. so we ended up making the record in Austin, Texas and I had done a record there with a band called The Wild Seeds um, a couple of years earlier and I love this studio it was called The Fire Station it was actually in San Marcos, Texas and we went down there to make this record and uh, I would say the first evening we got there the band I think I flew there some of the band drove there I'm not really sure exactly how they got there but the first we put them in a ho- in a uh, small room a small um you know, apartment close to what I didn't realize that Southwest Texas State University was right in San Marcos. So here you have a, you know, massive amount of kids. And I think it might've been spring break, so it wasn't a whole lot of kids there, but there was still a lot of kids. And a rock band from LA descends on this place. Okay. So it was such a mixed match of people, but the band, the first night I was in there, the band picks up a few girls and takes him into the studio and I don't even want to get into what happened sure. but those were those days you know back then that crazy shit happened so um, that started the project tough in a really like one of those real debauchery kind of like <laughs> almost like right out of the Motley Crue movie the dirt you know? right like way right out of that you know so um, we recorded it on a Harrison console with um, I think it was a um, I forget the tape machine I think it was a 3m tape machine and Bill Jackson, the engineer and I, and we just basically, you know, it was one of those records we kind of, you know, we had the songs kind of worked out a little bit, but we did a lot of really cool keyboard parts and we did a lot of like, um, you know, I would say stuff that was adventurous for hair bands of the day by using like a girl at the top of like breaking up a heart of stone and Uh just some interesting guitar things, some grooves that were just not normal, Love Injection, I thought was an amazing song. I thought that song never got its due uh for that record it's just it was so different than anything else that had come out at that time you know so and i think the band it was one of those bands that just it it could have been like one of those huge artists i think where they were there was a couple of things that happened first of all it just wasn't the right time for them right but secondly the second record they made um called dancing on calls i felt was an inferior album it didn't have any singles on it so um and that really at that time if you didn't have a single on your second record you were dead in the water you couldn't recover mm-hmm. so you know they never really recovered and even when we went and did the third album it was already over the hair band thing yeah. you know it was too late so um mm-hmm. yeah it was a very sad thing cuz I always thought that was one of my that was one of those bands that just deserved way more you know i think that it got it was very hard to handle success back then so the success that they got I think as a five-piece band, Joe Joe was very volatile individual at the time, and the band had their own ideas, the guitar players, about how they wanted the music to go. And I didn't like the songs on Dancing and Oak. El- I told him I didn't like that record, mm-hmm. and I didn't end up producing it because I kind of told them the dudes they didn't want to hear. So I think that was kind of one of those moments where I realized that I needed to speak my piece and be okay with the consequences, you know what I mean, of not producing the album. Yeah. So if you don't feel like you have the songs, you don't have the songs, you know? So um, and that's worked for me really well over the years, actually. Um, that was one of the first times I actually had to tell a band that I really liked that I didn't think their material was good enough. So, um, you know, they went ahead and made the record anyway. And, you know, some people really liked dance on Coles, but I thought Psycho Cafe was just, that was one of those of-the-moment records back then, you yeah. know. You know when I knew it was a big record? I was doing Pretty Boy Floyd in Philadelphia. Yeah. And a bunch of these girls came up to me at the studio and they they were like, did you produce Psycho Cafe? And I was like, yeah, and this is before the record came out and they said, oh my God, we love Bang Tango. And I was like, oh wow, actually, like I, I can't believe you guys even heard of Bang Tango. Right, you know, right. The record hadn't come out yet. You know? So, yeah, I had a feeling it would do pretty well, that one.
2: And the, you did a great job bringing the bass out because the bass is just so poppy, you know, in that, uh, it just sounds great.
1: Well, Kyle, Kyle, I mean, look, he's, uh, you know, um, another guy that I think in a different situation would have gone on to do, you know, play in huge bands and be a great artist on his own right because he was so inventive. I don't think he knew how good he was, you know? Yeah. And he was probably like, I don't know. He was the most, I would call him, it's hard to great talent in any band because everybody adds to it, but he was the most unique part of that band. Yeah. You know? So the sound of that band was like you first thing you heard on You know Someone like you Or Breaking Up a Heart of Stone All those songs are the bass You know And the, you know Even on Attack of Life You know Those songs Just the bass carries Those songs yeah. You know So Yeah
2: One thing I noticed too I was listening to it today And there's Wah Wah on it And you didn't hear a lot of Wah uh, On albums at that point You know what I mean?
1: Yeah Yeah That was just the guitar players deciding um, That's what they wanted to do You know Um you know, we just, uh, Mark and Kyle were, I mean, Mark is still a pretty active artist and does a lot of great music. He should hear his newest stuff is really great. And, uh, and Kyle was just, they just had a great thing. You know, the one cool thing about them is you could pan them left and right. And it was the first time I had worked with two great guitar players that really complemented each other. Like mm-hmm. I had done records before that with like Sanctuary and some other bands. And, you know, the guitar players were always fighting for position. <laughs> yeah. But these guys just, they worked together. They really worked their parts out. It was really pretty pretty genius what they were doing. I don't think they got their due either. No. You know? No. So and Tig was kinda like Ringo. You know? Tig was kinda like played kept a really good straight beat, like he didn't really mess around too much, which is why the band had a good groove. It was very simple what he was doing. Yeah. You know. It's simple, it's hard to do. Oh really. it is. You well,
2: know. so you, you hit on uh, Pretty Boy Floyd. That was the next one I was going to ask you about. Um, I think it wasn't one of the biggest albums at the time, but now this thing is kind of looked at as one of the finest glam albums that have ever been made. You know, it's it's definitely poppy, but it has some raw elements, like kind of like the way Cruise, Too Fast for Love is, and Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged In. Was that kind of what everybody was going for?
1: I think that album is one of the most underrated records ever, in, in my catalog, mm-hmm. and I think there was a lot of issues with the band and the label and internally that helped that hurt that that, that project. And it wasn't really the record as much as it just was the timing. You know, um, there was a lot of uh, resistance at MTV because they were, you know, it was right like uh, when I think I think MC, I think also they were on MCA and MCA was just not the rock label right. at that time. They were a terrible record company. They were run by. You know, I mean, Irving ran the label, but Irving wasn't that involved, I believe, at the time. But they were run by just Al Teller and all these pop guys. They just didn't get that project at all.
2: Okay.
1: You know, and, you know, they were managed by Steve's brother, who was a nice guy and everything. He just recently passed away, which is very sad, but he wasn't a real manager. You know, like, they didn't have, like, a real manager, manager that could go in there and kick ass. You know, Mm -hmm. so that hurt them a little bit. So there was like a lot of, I mean, the record, the songwriting on that record is, is amazing. It is. When you listen to it, like, it's like you get one song after another that's a pop it, pop it, pop it, pop it. And, you know, look, there's a lot of, of studio trickery on that record Okay. that you would know about. You know, like, you know, all the background vocals are sung by another guy from New York. I forget the guy's name, but he literally sang all of them. Okay. You know, Christy... Uh, Crash Majors was a big part of it. His guitar playing was really, really good. Okay. And um, the, bass, the bass player, I think we had to use a bass, um, a, a session guy to play the bass on that. Um, but Steve Summers had a great direction. And I went for the Poison thing with him a little bit where yeah. I quadrupled all the vocals. But then I knew that the background vocals were gonna be hard. So I just brought in a ringer to sing all the backgrounds, which is not atypical at the time. That was very, very normal. I mean, every record you heard back then was using a lot of the same background singers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that was just to give those big soaring harmonies. It was the first time I actually had a lot of fun doing things like that, but I actually brought them to Philly to do it. I don't know why I brought them to Philly. I was at that's my hometown. I went to Drexel University and I grew up in Lower Marion and um, I wanted to like get them out of LA, but them talk about a mismatch. I remember bringing them downtown to Jim's cheese steaks. And they were dressed in all their glam and they're mingling with, you know, hardcore South Philly, you know, Eagles fans, you know, (laughs) and it was, and those guys were threatening them, calling them like faggots and things like that, you know, this is, I mean, like, and I was going, I should never have brought these guys down here. Like, this was a mistake, you know, so it was really kind of like, I, I was kind of like a little naive at the time, to be honest. You know and i really got i was really very resentful about my hometown a little bit for being such assholes about the whole <laughs> thing but then again i grew up in philly you know i should have expected it you know um so then we did it at a place called k studios it was in uh Dallas. some of it was in the back some of it was in uh, in lower marion actually there's a studio there and some of it was downtown in their sister studio and then we uh i think we mixed it in la somewhere i think it was um a studio in the valley that we mixed it but yeah i mean uh, my favorite song on there was 48 Hours to Rock
2: Yeah, I
1: think that song is a masterpiece of just pop like bubblegum yeah. pop music and I actually ran it to Nicky Six Nicky Six lives in my neighborhood and I ran it to him and, and uh, also during the making of the dirt I did the music for the dirt the uh, re-records I, I said you know I was the one who did um, you know you know what I'm talking about the Molly Crew cover we did on there Toast, Toast of the Town oh, Toast
2: of the, oh the cover that you guys did at Toast of the Town is-
1: yeah yeah, and my and Nikki, Nikki said to me, uh, you did a guy did a great job on that and I was really and that was recently, I was in the last couple of years and I was so stoked to hear that, you know. So, you because know, I know Steve loved Steve Summers loved that song, Toast of the Town. Oh, it's cool. I thought we did a really good job on that one. I wasn't even that familiar with you know, honestly, at that point in my career, which people find crazy, I, I did not see myself as a rock producer. I had you know, early in, in the middle eighties I was, before I produced any records, I was an R&B guy. I, I worked with, like, Al McKay from Earth, Wind and & Fire, and I was in pop sessions, and I was writing pop songs. I, You know, I got produced T.S.O.L. and bands like that by mistake. Like, I just happened to be the producer that was chosen to go in and do those records. Okay. So I ended up, and I was doing jazz records even before that, you know? So I ended up making, like, punk records and then rock records, and it just sort of followed. I did what Jack Holtzman, who used to run Electric Records, said, I just followed the music right you know right like that's where the music was taking me and i was like okay i guess i'm a rock producer you know so um i think that's why a lot of my records have a lot of vocal harmonies and things and lots of vocal production because i love pop records i grew up in philly listening to pop music you know so um i wasn't really like oh my god this has to be like metal or writing even i didn't even know who motley Crue was back then, you know <laughs> like i was oblivious to everything i told thank i seen an interview about the sanctuary record i did which was on an epic and i was like i never had produced anything remotely like sanctuary sure. until the Y&R guy called me up and says do you want to do sanctuary and i was like i don't even know what the band is i don't know who dave Mustaine is i don't know anything about this okay i'll do it you know <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of like that with pretty boy floyd a little bit because you know it was signed by mca records which is where Bang Tango was on. Yep. They were on Mechanic MCA, so that's how I got the gig. It was the same AR and guy who signed Sweet F.A. as well. Yep. The same, that band. So that's how I did that band.
2: There was, um, there's a lot of demos that, that leaked out. Or actually, Pretty Boy Floyd put them out. So they were geared up to do another album. Do you remember ever being talked about to do that album? No. Or? No. Uh-uh.
1: I don't think we ever did it. I think they did one album, one real album, and that was it. Yeah,
2: yeah they got you dropped. Know. And uh, it's funny, got you, you, you've, you've, you've kind of said a lot of things that I was going to ask without me even having to ask you, but you, you must have had good ties with MCA because, like you said, you did Sweet F.A., you did Pretty Boy Floyd, you did Bang Tango, um, but they w- were a crap label. I mean, every artist I've talked to, I've talked to Keel, I've talked to and X, I've talked to everybody that's been on MCA, and they all say the label was shit and they didn't promote people the right way.
1: Well, they were a pop record company, and if you sign there as a rock band, and now we know a lot more how to promote these kind of things. But that back then, it was a little bit like you were at the whim of the record. Now you're not at the whim of the record company mm-hmm. anymore because there's so many other ways to get your music out there. But if you, back then you were at the whim of the record company, if they decided they were going to promote the new, you know, he whatever album they were doing, Mariah Carey, I don't even know if it was before Mariah Carey, but you know those kind of records, pop albums, you were going to be put on the back burner. You know, because that was where they made their money faster. A rock band was way, way more work, and it was not sure. And there's five guys to deal with, and you know, it was much more of a nightmare for them. So they just didn't like it. I don't know why they signed this stuff, to be honest. But that's why they signed Steve Sinclair's label. And Steve Sinclair deserves a lot of credit for Bang Tango and for Trickster, Mm -hmm. because he's Mechanic Records is the one who they did all the promotion. They just use MCA as a as a bank. So MCA didn't really have much to do with Bang Tango at that time. But once they se- severed their relationship with with Mechanic, any other thing that came out on MCA wasn't was sort of through MCA proper. Even the second Bang Tango record and the third Bang Tango record was just through MCA. Okay. The third Bang Tango record was literally we made it, and they dropped us. So oh, we made okay. it, and they dropped us the next week. They didn't even intend on putting the record out. That was after Nirvana, so we were kind of dead in the water yeah. at that point, you know. Yeah, it was so, like post-Nirvana and pre-Nirvana. Everything after Nirvana was, you know, that was it.
2: <laughs> so basically so, the the, the hairband thing kind of ended around 91, 92, and, uh, but you did produce Motorhead in the early 90s and in the mid-90s. What was it like uh, producing Lemmy?
1: You know, it's funny. I just put up some pictures I found of the sessions uh, that I've got. Um, I Lemmy actually rescued my career because after the hairband thing went away, I was not getting any projects. I mean, I was among like the Tom Wormans and the Bow Hills and you know the Michael uh, Wagners, those guys who did hair bands. You know that was our thing. And so when when modern rock came in, you know with Nirvana and you know Screaming Trees and all those bands, I wasn't getting those projects. You know George Coolius was getting them, or you know um you know that producer. Uh, you know, Butch Vig and those kind of yeah, guys, Steve Albini, no. they weren't hiring us. We were we were hairband guys. Like, we were out. <laughs> we were O U T out. You know, like don't. Howard Benson, he's a hairband producer, you know? <laughs> so, uh, Lemmy, for some reason, liked the sound of Psycho Cafe. Okay. So, he uh, his manager, Todd Singerman, who I'd known, you know, for, in other ways and stuff through other projects, called me and said, Lemmy wants to talk to you. So, I met Lemmy and. It was a good moment to meet him because he was he already done March or Die. And, um, he, you know, it was a nightmare. Look, anybody who tells you anything different, it was an absolute fucking nightmare producing Motorhead <laughs> for any producer. Okay. But I just needed the gig, right? So right. I'm like, I'll do it. So I went to rehearsal. And this is after I'd done about 10 records or 11 records. I was starting to get my feet underneath me, um, you know, as far as the music producer. And I'd also gone through a really big career um, thing with um, South Gang. Like I had done that band and that band was, you know, you know that band with which yep. Walker ended up out of that artist. But I was fired from that project and that was at the tail end of the hair band era. And Keith Olsen was hired. And Keith, um, you know, I was that's the first time I'd ever been fired from anything, wow. you know. Yeah. And I was freaked out by it. So I went in and talked to Keith and I said, Hey, I know you're the new producer I would love to just just hang out with you and learn. Like, I know I don't know everything. You've sold millions of records. I've sold, you know, no records. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, for you to even, like, say something like that to me, that you're willing to take a step back from the producer role and be just an assistant on a record, shows me how much you want to win. And I, I, like, I like you, and I'll have you in. So I audited that record. Like, I hung out around South Gang, and I picked up all this information from Keith Olsen, like how to be a, pro- like I wasn't a great producer at that point. I was okay. I didn't have the, um, what's the word for it? I didn't have the, uh, the, um, the, the behavioral, like I, I needed to, to learn how to be the man mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. And the way to be the man is to have platinum records, right. <laughs> and to be in control and to kind of like, you know, be the person, like not be friends with the band, but be, you know, the coach and not go out, like not hang out, you know, so when I got into Motorhead, I had already gone through boot camp a little bit again with Keith Olsen. And when I was with Lemmy, I was a much better producer at that point in 1994 than I was in 1992. And that was a big deal for me. So when I started producing him, I was much more prepared phys- you know, mentally. And so I argued with Lemmy literally on every – I did four hours. That's why he kept hiring me because I was the best arguer. He told me, he goes, nobody, nobody fucking – Argues with me like you do, you know. <laughs> and he goes, "You fucking give a shit." You, and I, I remember the Keith was very much about that. Keith was like, "Hey, if you think it's right, hold your ground." You know. I watched Keith do some stuff in the studio that I didn't have the balls to do, okay. but Keith did. You know. And so I started applying some of those tactics and some of the vocal production he did and all that stuff, and that enabled me to get through Motorhead and actually made one of his better records called Bastards, which ended up in Airheads and. We had a really good run with him, like, and so he kept hiring me. But, you know, after four albums, I had had enough, sure. you know. so um, And then I started having real hit records. Up to that point, I hadn't sold any records. I was still, like, with Motorhead, doesn't sell records, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're just yeah. like, you know, I used to joke with Lemmy, he was the most unrecouped person in Hollywood, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, we would finally, I got to do a band called Less Than Jake, and then I started doing, uh, I got a band called Zebrahead, so I started doing a little bit of sales, and then I hit it out of the park with P.O.D. Nice. And then that was my first major record. And then I went from selling a total of 200,000 albums to my life to selling over 50 million albums. Awesome. So that was like, you know, but I, but, you know, it didn't come easy, man. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. If you think about my career, it, I didn't come out of nowhere. Like I put my time in, you know, yeah. and those hair band, and those hairbands had a lot to do with it. You know, That's they awesome. really did. They taught me a lot. I, you know, I wish. We had more success, but I think I got in a little late. Like, I was a little bit late to the party. Sure, yeah. You know, like like, like maybe a year late. I, I think of some of the bands I had done like a year before, we would have had more time. But right when I did Bang Tango and Pretty Boy Floyd, you could kind of feel like it was too many bands signed. Oh, big it
2: time. There were
1: just too many of them. Big time. You know, you went, let me tell you something, man. I used to go to the Sunset Strip, and walk down the strip to go to Gazzari's, the Whiskey, and all these, band, these places, and the Roxy with A&R guys from Major labels, and they'd be signing these things on the spot. South Gang got signed on the spot. Sweet F.A. got signed on the spot. Bang Tango on the sp- It was like crazy.
2: Yeah. You
1: know? Like, pretty much like, boom, sign them. Like, you couldn't sign them fast enough. Yeah. You know? So there's just not the market for all those bands. No. You know? So it's, uh, I once made a, a list of all the bands signed. I think I had 350 signed bands between, like, you know, that era. In that era, uh, so
2: crazy.
1: you know what? Maybe ten of them really sold, right? You know, maybe fifteen. So yeah, it was kind of uh, it was interesting. I learned a lot, put that way.
2: <laughs> Definitely. So, but you, uh, when I was looking at some of your credits, I mean, I mean, you've done Papa Roach, Daughtry, Hailstorm, Skillet, and Flames. So basically, uh, Howard, you moved on, but there's a lot of us here we were we're still trapped in the '80s, you know? Well, I I moved on because
1: of a significant. Thing that happened with technology, I was actually a very ado- early adopter, even back into the early ni- in the middle 90s of, of the computer. So I started making records in the Pro Tools in, okay. in 1996, 97, and we're talking about 10 years before it was really adopted for real in our business, like, like full on, you know. So my records, when I started getting the hang of the, the computer and getting all the plugins and what I could do with it, I started taking bands like like the PODs in the world and turning them into like massive albums because of the computer. I was able to use, I had auto-tune, which nobody was using at the time for the both singers. I could edit drums, edit vocals, edit stuff, add loops, all kinds of stuff. My competition, honestly, they were asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm. I had guys like Ed Stacey, you know, producing records on tape, and I would do them in the computer and my records would be thousands of times better because I had the technology, you know? And I learned that was a big thing too, where you go, wow, you really need to keep up with the technology. Now I have other guys keeping up with the technology because I can't keep up with it, (laughs) you know, so it's too much of it. But back then, I mean, I'd walk into like Chris Lord Alge's studio with my pro tools rig and he'd look at me like I was nuts, you know, like, what is this thing? I'm like, it's a computer. He's where's the tape. (laughs) Like there is no tape. Well, how can that be? You know, Well, it's in a computer. It's all digital. I mean, that's my, you know, I went to Drexel. I have a degree in aerospace engineering. You know, this isn't that hard for me, this stuff, you know, but I couldn't convince a lot of people of it. You know, when I was working in aerospace, I worked for Garrett Air Research for four years in Torrance before I started producing. My job was to make sure planes didn't crash. This wasn't planes crashing. This is just music, you know, (laughs) so, you know. To me, it wasn't that hard, but, I, but a lot of people, even the artists didn't believe in it. Some of the artists were like, well, I'm not working in a computer, mm-hmm. you know? And then I would finally just say, hey, don't look at the computer. Forget it's here, you know? If you want to go look at the tape machine, even though it's not running, just go look at it, you know? So, you know, you had to get people over the hump, but boy, did that change the world for me, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's, that was, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I've done, like, I've done so many records after 2000. And I think I've done 150 albums total. Wow. In my career, but most of them were done from 2000 on, you know, yeah. from 2000 to like 2018 or something, or even now, I'm still making records. So, you know, I've actually made records in five decades. Can you believe that? That, Isn't is, that crazy.
2: That is crazy. That is yeah. awesome. And back with the Pro Tools. Somebody has to do it. Everybody. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, everybody knows what Pro Tools are. You might not even be a, a you know much into recording, but you probably heard of bands making music with Pro Tools. So that's just the way it's done now.
1: Right. But in 1996. No. <laughs> Nobody knew what it was. It was absolutely magic, you know? And I actually got into it by accident. I was doing a record called Sepultura, and I was in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. They flew me to Sao Paulo Roadrunner, and I was scared out of my pants being that fucking city man. Oh, my oh, yeah. God, is that lawless, where back then it was. Oh, I bet. But where we were, the studio had a tape machine and a computer, and the and the engineer um, didn't really want to use the tape machine. He wanted to use the computer, and I'd never even seen anything. Like, I had seen, like... Variations of Pro Tools, which were like Mac, uh, PC-based stuff and uh, Turtle Beach and all kinds of stuff that was at the time companies trying to be in that space. But I'd never seen the the you know Pro Tools, Digital Designs Pro Tools. And let me tell you something, man. I remember sitting down there and getting the drum tracks back from Sepultura, and because we you know they were recorded in a computer, and I still didn't know how it worked. And I remember sitting down in front of the computer, I put my hand on the mouse, and and I felt the power. I did. I felt it. I thought, oh my God, I can do so much shit without having to talk to this fucking band. <laughs> like, I can, I don't have to negotiate with them. I don't have to talk to them, to hear about their bullshit, or turn their face. I could get this shit done. And by the time they come back the next day, I'm going to have like a great sounding, like, finished drum track ready to record the guitars. And I don't care if the guitar player can't play, I can fix all this stuff. Right. Really fast. That's you know? Awesome. And it clicks in your mind that this is the future. This is it, and I don't never go back to that, that, that big friggin table in the corner with two reels on it that was like our, it, 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 that turned like I drive a Tesla now, that looked like an internal combustion engine to me, you know yeah. that thing. Like like, why would I want that with all those moving parts? I got this computer, you know, that I could do anything to it. So it was a big moment, really big, and I think that's really what made my career. Actually, you know, I would I would tell any producer stay on top of the tech. You know, oh, you have to. That's your main, big, big, best part of your career. The other part is is understanding how to hit songs and great vocals. You know, that's another part of why my career did well. Is I learned I looked at it. So it's all about songs. Bands that have the great songs, they win. You know,
2: it's true. So Howard, um, but really, thanks so much about sharing the some of these stories from the the hair bands and you know, Bang Tango and Pretty Boy Floyd. Because like I said, people still love those albums. So I mean, you're definitely part of history uh, putting those albums together. And uh, I think, especially with the Pretty Boy Floyd man, I think people like that album now more than they did when it was out. So
1: well, I actually talked to Steve Summers. I just talked to him a few weeks ago. Actually, he's got a thing going. He's going to do a project. Get this project. He's doing a project with the singer who sang the vocals on the dirt. Oh, who okay. sang the Vince Neal parts, his name is Tim. So he's the guy who did all the vocal parts and he's, um him and Steve are gonna do something together. Oh, wow. And I heard the first song, it's fucking great. Uh, Actually, they got something going that's really different, you that's know? That's awesome. So I hope it works out for them. I really like those guys, you know?
2: Yes, yeah, so, Steve's great, man. He's yeah. he's he's got an awesome, very distinct voice, and and it fits that kind of music just perfectly, perfectly.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty much, it's so funny that, you, that more and more people are to, to me about that record. It's really funny, you know, like it's uh, made a big comeback for some reason, you yeah. know.
2: Yeah. So, well, great music will do that. So
1: let me know if you need anything else. We can get into the B teams if you want, like Child's Play, <laughs> and Sweet FA, and King of the yeah, Hill, yeah, yeah, and all yep. that stuff. I
2: remember all those guys? Oh yeah, killer stuff.
1: I do. I did all those records, too.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, Howard, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, man. All right, man. Good luck. See you later. Take Bye. care. Well, that was a great episode. Thanks so much to Mark and Howard. Now, there's a lot more coming on the way from the 80s Glam metal Cast. Best thing to do, become a subscriber. Hey, everybody else is doing it. Rock on. Rock on.